Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. I'm Robin Carlene. I live in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, and I'm a proud monthly supporter of TNE. I grew up in the evangelical community, and the church was very much a part of my identity. It is still painful to have lost that community, and even more painful to see how the evangelical movement has become defined by political agendas and warped theology. This is one of the reasons why I really admire Tim's work in the new evangelicals. He has the ability to kind of expose these really unsettling issues and address his adversaries with love, candor, and an open mind. I think I really have to say I was taken when he went out to the Asbury Revival and reported from there. That was a moment where I decided that this is someone with integrity that I wanted to support. I also met Tim up at in, in person at a Quaker meeting in North Jersey. And uh, what can I say? Um, Deep respect for a fellow uh, Jersey boy who really showed humanity in a very small setting, not just large ones. Tim, thanks for being the loving hand and compassionate heart of Christ in a world of angry tongues and warped minds. Peace. Oh, what's up, friends? Hello. How are we doing? I literally got back less than 24 hours ago from Turning Point USA's America Fest. If you don't know what this is, it's one of the biggest Christian nationalist events in the U.S. Over 10,000 people attend. It is a who's who of far right personalities and politicians. I went there last year, had to go back this year because I need to keep my finger on the pulse right, of what's going on. And plus, I'm going to make a pretty long recap video on YouTube. But I wanted to hop on as I do the intro for this episode to kind of share with you a few immediate takeaways from the event, what I learned, and honestly, why I'm concerned, but also why I did see some signs of hope. 
So I'm not going to go into all the details right now about the event. Like I said, I'll do a much longer recap video on YouTube, so stay tuned for that. But this event is massive. There are podcasts, there are personalities, there's media outlets. It's huge. And it is loaded and and full to the brim of not only far right rhetoric, you know, um, immigrants are replacing us, uh, gender, child gender mutilation is the biggest threat facing kids, that kind of thing. It's also very Christian. I mean, Charlie Kirk came on the stage on Sunday night uh, during what they call it was the strong church worship night full of a worship band and other speakers saying how the, the church needs to be strong and stand up for biblical values, which apparently translate into you know, far right talking points. And I want to share this one crazy moment that really stood out to me. I actually, I did a video on this. It's actually currently on our Instagram. So if you want to see the visuals, you can go there and watch it. I'll try and put a link in the show notes, which I always say I do that. I always forget to do, but I'll really try and put it here. I'm watching Steve Bannon speak. Now, if you don't know who Steve Bannon is, I can't get into details, but essentially he's someone who is pretty freaking extreme. He is just a very much a, a everyone's an enemy. You're the true patriot kind of guy. I'm in a room with probably close to 7,000 people watching him speak. He's talking about how they, meaning the liberals or the Marxists or the globalists, whoever they are, how they hate you and how they are demons. He literally said that. He goes, they're demons. They are demonic. And then he calls Nikki Haley, who's a current presidential candidate in the Republican Party, he calls her Lucifer because there's a whole push happening right now in these spaces of um, this far right movement trying to take over the Republican Party to push it towards a permanent state of Trumpism. So all this happens. People are cheering. Steve Bannon is threatening Trump's opponents with retribution, etc. And after that, I, I swear to you, 25 minutes later, a worship band comes on the stage and they sing songs to Jesus. And I'm like, wow, if this is not a great example of Christian nationalism that will tell its followers to build crosses for their enemies and then worship a Jesus who bore a cross for his enemies, it was mind blowing. And, and this event, it always motivates me. In fact, if you want me to be honest with you, we got the the thought for Project Amplify. I got that thought from going to this event last year. I was like, my gosh, there is no one in this other space that isn't this far right space who's Christian and committed to engaging culture and politics and theology. Uh, there's no one out there doing anything like this or having these kinds of platforms. What if we tried to build it? What if we tried to create our own coalitions of credible voices to get their content out on our platforms via, you know, podcasts and shows and YouTube and Instagram. And so this is where I got the idea because when you see it in person, it truly is larger than life. I mean, I cannot express to you what it's like and it's concerning. It is really freaking concerning because the rhetoric being pushed is so dangerous. However, the other reason I go to these events is to talk to people. And I do. At this point, I'm pretty embedded, actually, in these spaces. People know who I am. They come up and say hi to me. They ask how I'm doing. They ask how my kids are. I ask how their kids are. And those moments, I listen, I know for some of you, you're like, Tim, what are you doing talking to the enemy? Okay. I understand that. And I know it might feel counterintuitive, but in my estimation, when it comes to the grassroots relational level, that's actually how you make the change that you want to see by talking to people, finding common ground and trying to take one step at a time. I cannot give names because the reason why people trust me is, is I tell them I'm not here to blow them up online or to name names. But I talk to a lot of people who are pretty prominent in these spaces. One person in particular 
I've called this person out before on social media. They've called me out. We've talked now twice. I, I, I met them last year. We actually hit it off better than I thought. And we talked again this year. And we actually found some serious common ground to the point where this person posted a picture of me and them on their Instagram channel, uh, which has over 100,000 followers, saying that they love me. Okay, now that's progress because we actually had real conversations and I was able to push them in a healthy way, just asking them questions. What do you think about this? How does this work? And they conceded some points and I said, yeah, no, I totally get that. Things are complicated. That's how I make the progress that I make individually. Now that's different, okay, than the policies that are being advocated for and how we resist the the legislative push, right, to, to take over the nation for God, which is code for far right values. I get all that. But going to these events for me is really important. It keeps my finger on the pulse. It actually gets me to talk to these people so I can actually understand what they're where they're coming from. And that understanding helps me better combat this stuff publicly. So anyway, I know this is like a longer intro. It's actually kind of a two-part episode. But my experience at my experience at America Fest only reinforces the need for something like Project Amplify. I hear it from you all the time. I'm scared. Where are the other people? Is there any counter movement? How do we carve better paths forward? Friends, I, I, I struggle. Let me just be so raw with you. I struggle asking for donations. I'm going to ask. Okay, I'm going to. And I struggle because I don't want you to feel manipulated and I don't want to use the sky is falling rhetoric that we, we've often heard, but I need to be truthful with you. And the truth is that I really believe that democracy is at stake in this election cycle. And I believe that now more than ever, there is no other organization like like the one that is TNE in the sense of us being a digital first organization. We are Christian at our core. We're also engaging culture and politics. There's no other organization like ours that is thinking about things this way. And I know this because I've talked to people who are deep in these spaces. I've talked to Brian McLaren. I've talked to Shane Claiborne. I've talked to Jamar Tisby. We've pitched them this idea. They're all on board and more. Rocky from the 1946 movie, she's a great friend, on board because no one else is thinking about how do we build coalitions to build better paths forward. And the and, and real talk, the way that happens is twofold. First, you need a vision and a plan. We have that. Then you need people. We have that. Then we need funding. We don't have that. We're never going to be able to make the dent that we all want to see if we don't have the funding we need to do it. That means money for an actual studio space. That means hiring a producer to make more consistent content that is covering all the stuff that you see that I just don't have time to cover. So here's what I'm asking from you. I know a lot of you listen to the podcast. I know a lot of you love the show and I appreciate that. And my voice is a little raw right now. It's been such a long week, but I had to get this out here. I'm asking you if you're able and willing, would you consider donating? Would you go right now to the show notes, click on the link and donate, whether it's a $5 donation or a monthly donation of $10 or a one-time donation, it all helps. Thousands of you listen to the show. If we all chip in, we're able to be funded. We're, we need to raise $150,000 by end of this year to really give us the kickstart that we need. That goes towards hiring someone. That goes towards getting an editor on board so I'm not doing all the work by myself. That goes to getting a small studio space to have better production so we can live stream to things like YouTube more and cover more in the moment content and also start planning more evergreen content, doing series, things that will help educate people, help inform them that, hey, there are Christians out there who reject Christian nationalism and who truly 
stand for better ways forward in their faith. So that's my sincere ask is a donation. Maybe you're someone who likes to give a good chunk of money at the end of the year to get a tax write-off. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. All donations made are tax deductible. Would you consider donating? All of our finances are transparent. We post our profit and loss statement on our website. There are no secrets here, okay? There are no secrets here. I'm not asking for your money so I can buy a Tesla or anything like that. It all goes right towards the organization organization to make the work possible. Friends, I see the vision. I see where we need to go. The people are there. The contributors are willing. We need the fuel. I'm sincerely asking you for the fuel to make this happen. Donate in the show notes. You can go to our website. You can go to Instagram and donate there. We are partnered with, with, with Fidelity Charitable Grants. You can donate through um, them. We take stock. I'm just saying, like, if you want to donate, there's a way to make it happen. We even take Venmo. So that would be just so helpful. And the reason why I'm giving this intro for this guest is because Reverend Nathan Emsel is someone who is actually fighting Christian nationalism on the front lines as well. And he, we talk a lot about that in this episode. We also talk about some of the good news. We talk about some of the wins against Christian nationalism that protect religious freedom and freedom from religion for all Americans, not just the Christian ones. So I think you're going to love this interview. I'm so grateful for you, friends. Stay tuned for my recap. It will should be out probably sometime next week. I have a lot of content to get through. I have to write the script, get my thoughts, you know, in order, etc. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for listening to this intro. I can't thank you enough for being here. Please donate, donate, donate. The money is going to help people find better paths forward in their faith, to push back against Christian nationalism, and to play our part in helping to save democracy that protects all of its citizens without privileging the Christian ones. Thanks for listening, friends. Grateful for you. Talk to you soon. All right, great. I am so pumped, friends. Um, I'm actually talking to a friend. Uh, me and Reverend Nathan have done a lot of work behind the scenes. We've met several times before. So Reverend Nathan Emsel, it is great to have you on the podcast. Finally, thanks for making time and thanks for being here. Tim, great to see you. Great to be here. And we've done a little bit of work in front of the scenes. Really grateful that you came on Faithful America's uh, tough turkey talking turkey webinar just before Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I I honestly felt so like the uh, the the least qualified person on that panel. There were some amazing people there who had some amazing things to say, but it was an honor to come on and talk to people about how to navigate uh, hard discussions, especially when, when your family is more in that Christian nationalist adjacent world. It was a lot of fun. You've been doing a lot of work. Um, really resisting and fighting back against Christian nationalism. And I, I want to get into, I do want to get into some of that, but before I do, I love to hear just kind of the cliff notes version of each of my guests, like their story. Now I, I don't want to assume, um, I, did you grow up in evangelical spaces? I mean, I think right now you're an Episcopalian priest, if I'm not mistaken, how did you grow up and what eventually led you to do this? And then, you know, what you do now with faithful America. Oh, I'm not used to talking about myself in these, in these faithful America interviews. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they thought you were going to ask me to tell you about Faithful America, uh, which I do want to do. Yeah, uh, so I, I have always kind of had a foot in the evangelical world, but I was I was all I've been an Episcopalian since birth. I almost okay. left the church at one point to go check out the Quakers. Nice, and that's when I saw it. Yeah, I, and it was not I was not against the Episcopal Church. I just thought the Quakers were really cool. And this was when I was in high school <laughs> in, in North Idaho, and that's when I first felt the the call to ordination. Uh, was it was like God was saying, no, you don't get to leave the Episcopal Church. This is your home. And if the only way I can make you stay is to make you be ordained, so be it. 
Uh, the, the, the shape of that, that's not why I became ordained in the end, many years later, the, the shape of that call changed over the years. But um, yeah, I was, I was born in Texas, grew up there until I was about 13 and we moved to North Idaho. So East Texas, North Idaho, not an evangelical, but, but very conservative places. So all my friends would be conservative evangelicals. I, I've always been fairly liberal, especially once I got to college and, and high school, but you have to be friends with people who disagree with you or I would have had no friends. Right. Um, right. So uh, I, I was I, I devoured all the left behind books as they came out in, in the 90s and early zeros. I remember trying to get my Episcopal priest and youth group leader to read them. And he was very diplomatic. He read a couple of them for me and never told me he didn't like them. But in hindsight, I can tell he was <laughs> I can see what he meant in hindsight. They're compelling stories. What did you think of the theology? Isn't it great? Isn't it biblical? They're compelling stories. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, KSBJ Houston Radio, so listening to a lot of contemporary Christian music, I uh, was going to our school mascot was the Wildcats, and I was in that group, Cats for Christ, uh, very probably the, the not, low non-evangelical there, um, but also going to the Episcopal Church youth group and being a, an acolyte in the Episcopal Church, an altar boy, basically. When I got to college, I was very active in the Episcopal campus ministry. It was my home away from home, but I was also uh, showing up at all the evangelical campus ministries, which is where my roommates came from, yeah. the junior and senior year. And there's many of them are still dear friends and, and, and Facebook connections. Uh, and in hindsight, they're wonderful and they are who I thought they were. And the groups themselves had some problems, some weird gender dynamics, especially that, that were really problematic. Uh, and I think a number of other folks looking back have, have seen some of that too. I still love a lot of praise music, um, especially Rich Mullins, but I love classic organ hymns. My my favorite uh, Anglican theologian is John Wesley, right? Mm. People think he started the Methodist church. No, he started the Methodist societies and, and small groups within the Anglican communion of which the Episcopal church is part. But uh, he was always uh, an Anglican priest, loved the book of common prayer and communion, but improv prayer. And, and preaching outside uh, impromptu, not just being bound to the written prayers we love, but that evangelical streak of, of just talking to God on the go. Mm. Uh, I love that. And his emphasis on grace and love. Yeah. Anytime I go to a, a conference, I find myself hanging out with the, the progressive evangelicals in the corner more than the, the other liturgical mainline Protestant folks. So I you know, kind of straddle both worlds a little bit. Um, but, but the Episcopal Church is very much my home. Good to know. Um, so you run an organization called Faithful America. They are, um, I, I discovered them probably on Twitter a while ago, maybe a year or two ago. And you guys have been really outspoken against Christian nationalism and you've organized quite a few different campaigns. I'm curious for you, um, when did you first really start kind of getting a whiff of, of Christian nationalism and what it, what it was and what it was doing? What was your yeah. first encounter? So I'm mean, Christian nationalism as a phrase the last three or four years, right? Christians Against Christian Nationalism launched that wonderful project that, that is a part of the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty. And they, along with a number of academics and, and a few church leaders, helped us start to understand that phrase Christian nationalism. Of course, Christian nationalism itself has been around for a long time. Well, what is Christian nationalism? It's a political ideology that many people subscribe to. We can quote them. And here's a label we have put on to you know, briefly reference that ideology. That ideology has been around, uh, you know, in different countries for for centuries, but it, sure. it's been a major part of the U.S. certainly since Manifest Destiny. It, it's driven the religious right, uh, at least the politics of the religious right, for decades. 
personally, I've cared about this this stuff since high school, and when I learned about who Franklin Graham was, and and to a lesser extent, I suppose Jerry Falwell, and it felt like it was a hijacking of my faith. Yeah, uh, you know, I was a little bit torn on LGBTQ issues, and and fairly pro life. I mean, I'm very pro LGBTQ and pro choice now. But as a high schooler in Idaho, I was, I was a little more on the fence. But those weren't the things that mattered. Loving, loving one another was what mattered. Loving the poor was what mattered. Love was what mattered. Lifting one up one another, not fighting for ourselves, but fighting for others. And here was Franklin Graham making it all about hatred and making us look bad. Mm. And that's not exactly nationalism, but it becomes nationalism when he and they start to try to turn that into law. Right? It's one thing to say incorrectly that LGBTQ folks are going to hell. That's wrong, but it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say it's Uncle Sam's job to stop them. It's not. Right, right. And that's when you go from misguided, hateful, conservative theology to outright nationalism, theocracy, trying to make it a Christian nation, but more than that, a conservative Christian nation, a yeah. white conservative Christian nation, uh, erasing the black church tradition, mainline Protestants, progressive Catholics, etc. And I could feel that erasure. And then I would have what really fired me up was also questions about who gets to heaven, who gets to go to hell. And uh, that that's less national and, and, and more theological, but obviously there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. And that would time. animate Yeah. And that would animate Bible study arguments as the, sort of the token Democrat and token Episcopalian in the evangelical groups. Um, and I was always welcome. I'll give them that. I mean, they can be very, very welcoming, but we, we would have those arguments and discussions. Um but, you know, running in more liberal circles, what I would run to was less the nationalism itself, the Christian nationalism or the religious right hatred and more folks who had been burned and hurt by it. Mm. You know, I, I've <clears throat> I've worked for the Democratic Party. I've worked for the Sierra Club. I've now lived in a lot of, you know, cities and blue states, although I'll always be more of a mountain guy myself. But, um, I, you know, I've met the people who have been burned by the church, the people who have been turned away. When my grandparents got divorced, you know, my grandmother always said that uh, – he got the church in the divorce and that that's not okay. Mm. Um, but to then meet LGBTQ folks who were kicked out by their families. And we hear about that all the time, faithful yeah. American members. Yeah. And so it's, it's meeting the people who, who thought they were going to meet Christ and, and met something very different instead. That's been my main encounter with Christian nationalism, I think. And, and my heart aches for them. Okay. Here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another 100 meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You could turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. 
Must be present in certain states. Visit PrizePix.com for restrictions and details. Yeah. I think it's really important because you are someone who's motivated to do this work because of your Christian faith. And I think a lot of people uh, in our audience probably is not used to hearing someone say, because of my faith, I have these views, right? Usually it's, um, if you're a real Christian, you think that gay people are going to hell. If you're a real Christian, you think that the Bible is inerrant. If you're a real Christian, you know, whatever it is. Can you just maybe give a few um, thoughts on, for you, how your faith animates you to actually stand against Christian nationalism and to fight for the rights of all of your neighbors? Absolutely. Look, that's, that's, I mean, forget just me. That's why Faithful America was started. We were started in 2004, co-founded by the National Council of Churches, uh, which represents most of the mainline Protestant denominations in the U.S., Episcopal Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, and a number of others, and, and a group of progressive activists who, there was a Catholic, uh, a, a Protestant, an evangelical, I believe, and we've bounced around and we're now a fully independent organization. But from the start, we were founded to work for peace, for social justice, for love, for dignity, founded by churches. Our very first action uh, in 2004 was protesting the torture in Abu Ghraib. And to this day, we're working for LGBTQ equality. We're working for immigrants and refugees and their rights. We're working for uh, a healthier climate. And it is all because of our faith. Uh, you know, my mind personally goes to, we're coming up on Christmas here, right? My mind yeah. goes to the Magnificat. And I celebrate Christmas all year long. We don't take the crosses down after Good Friday or Easter. Why take the nativity scene down? Uh, <laughs> That's a good point. On, on a but, uh, you know, it's a podcast. So those listening, let's see the nativity scene behind me. But that's that's there all year. Um, but my mind goes to Mary's song, the Magnificat, and, and do a couple particular lines when she's saying that God tears down the mighty from their thrones and lifts up the poor and the lowly. He sends away the rich, but, but fills the hungry with good things. Jesus talks about loving your neighbor as yourself and loving as he has loved more than anything else. And when he's asked to punish sinners, he says, let, and we can disagree about what sin is, mm. but I don't think a same sex relationship is a sin. I don't think the Bible actually says it. It is the way we, often hear that that's what scripture says. We can talk about that, but whether it's a sin or not, Jesus says, Hey, you calling this person a sinner, you without sin cast the first stone. Hmm. I, Jesus does condemn sin. We, we do need to live for one another and live for God and live with discipline. Though we can disagree about what that looks like, but when we fall, at least the religious leaders yelling at people for falling that Jesus yelled at the most. Yeah. What, what yeah. mattered was doing our best, trying again when we fall, like the prodigal son coming home and living for others, not for ourselves, uh, living for the least of these. Yeah. I love that because you said something, you said something very important. I think that as I... Um, we'll call it deconstructed. I, I, not my favorite term, but whatever. Um, as I deconstructed, I almost became allergic to the word sin because mm -hmm. the term sin was so loaded in my context, right? It, it automatically assumed everything that we're talking about, you know, well, real sinners are, you know, people who are gay or, you know, sin is like this list of, you know, you, you said the F word or whatever it could be. You didn't drink, et cetera. Um, but I, I think that, and, I, and I'm talking to the people out there who want to stay in the Christian tradition. If you're out of the house, I totally get it. This this isn't applicable to you. But I think it's important that we as Christians really do, don't do throw that term out or what it even could mean um, because 
there is sin in the world. There is bad things happening in the world that really harm other people. And I think it's more about reclaiming the term and understanding maybe a more holistic view of what sin is, as opposed to this personal piety kind of view where it's like, well, there's individual sins that the church, my culture, you know, my, my cultural church context gave me. And so because I deconstructed from a lot of that and don't think that, that those things are necessarily sin anymore, I sin doesn't exist. Well, that's not really a fair you know, I think assessment for me either. Can you maybe as a, as a, a reverend, can you maybe kind of give us some of your thoughts on, on how we can think about sin a little bit differently uh, that, that, that doesn't get rid of the term, but helps us as Christians think about those terms in a more holistic way. So in the Episcopal church, our worship and in the Anglican communion, the Episcopal church is, is the official Anglican presence in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, part of this, this global body of 30 some odd churches walking together, started by the church of England. We have what's called the book of common prayer. All of our worship comes out of this book. And the reason I say that is I'm going to read to you from the very back of the, the current edition of the Episcopal church's book of common prayer. We have a very short catechism. I mean, if the Catholic church's catechism is a thousand pages, ours is 10. But one of the questions in this is, and by the way, we don't say you're in trouble if you disagree with our catechism. It's, it's sort of a <laughs> guideline a starting point not a you will believe this but one of the questions in it is what is sin so i think that's a good place for us to start great so i've pulled it up at bcponline.org what is sin sin is the seeking of our own will instead of the will of god thus distorting our relationship with god with other people and with all creation how does sin have power over us Sin has power over us because we lose our liberty when our relationship with God is distorted. What is redemption? Redemption is the act of God which sets us free from the power of evil, sin, and death. Hmm. So it, the phrase that came up several times there is relationship with God and also relationship with one another, relationship with creation. To put another way, sin is anything that gets between us and God. Sin is something that distorts our relationship with God or with God's creation, including with one another. So, of course, we could argue about what it is that is God's will. To break from God's will is a sin. Okay, what is God's will? Mm-hmm. And that's where we'll have these disagreements. But ultimately, if our goal is to love God and love one another, then sin is when we don't love, mm-hmm. or more than that, when we stop trying to love. But we can always be the prodigal son and come home. My favorite chapter in the Bible, it's in Luke, I'm pretty sure it's Luke 12, uh, where you get three parables in a row, the lost sheep being found, abandoning a thousand sheep to go look for one, uh, the, the, the woman finding the lost coin in her home and, and rejoicing, and then the prodigal son. And we know these three parables about God rejoicing at what is lost and found rather than giving up on it, or what has wandered away, the sheep, the son, and not saying, okay, you're done, you left me, but rejoicing at the return. And these these parables really hit you when you read them in a row and realize they're all the same chapter. Mm. And that brings to mind Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing about the Roman soldiers who were killing him. Sin is not the last word. We always get to try again. And, and that gives me a lot of hope. Uh, we, we get to keep pushing against Christian nationalism or against the harm many in the church have caused because we know that tomorrow can be better, that God hasn't left us over these sins, hasn't left us over ours. He hasn't left our enemies over theirs. There's always hope for a better tomorrow, always a call to return home.
Hey, I'm Shane Claiborne from Red Letter Christians, and I am proud to team up with the New Evangelicals and Project Amplify because Christianity is in crisis in America. There are a lot of folks who are trying to camouflage their bigotry or hatred or exclusion in the name of Christ. But at the end of the day, the word Christian means Christ-like. And so we're called to look like Jesus, to love like Jesus. Jesus said we will be known by our love. So let's reclaim Jesus. Let's take the good news of the gospel back. And I want you to join me uh, for this project, Project Amplify, because as my friend Reverend Barber says, the way that we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. And some of the loudest voices representing Christianity haven't always been the most Christ-like or the most loving or faithful or beautiful. It's time to change that. So let's kind of talk about Christian nationalism for a little little bit because we are coming up on on Christmas. And I think one of the things that I have been realizing more and more is how at least for me, I'm sure for most Christians, what makes Christmas so powerful is the is the concept that the creator of all, you know, the the infinite God of the universe would would manifest themselves in a little innocent baby and be born, you know, really into poverty and under under Roman occupation as a minority group, right? And it just seems to really slap in the face of what Christian nationalism consistently tries to advocate for, that we have to take things over by force, that our God is a God of power who will just fight you know, for us to destroy our enemies, etc. For you, as you see this stuff, what are some of your biggest concerns about Christian nationalism in the U.S. as you see it? Yeah. Happy birthday, sweet little eight pounds, six ounce newborn baby Jesus. Don't even know a word yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I I love Christmas. I mean, God is uh, Christianity is all about living against the world as it is. It's, it changes literally everything that we are expected to do in our lives, flipping every table, even the tables we progressives don't think need flipping. And it starts yeah. with God doing what you said, showing up in occupied territory, uh, in in a manger where the animals feed. As the son of a day laborer, not and, and it continues through Palm Sunday and beyond to this day. Every every expectation we have of a warrior king uh, is flipped, and we're called to love, not to coerce or fear. Christian nationalism calls us to coercion and to fear, hmm. not not to love. I think Christian nationalism, and, and many others have said this, is the biggest threat to both democracy and the church today. You know, and, and I oppose it because, and we could talk about the specifics where Jesus preaches peace and is the Prince of Peace who says, put away the sword. Christian nationalism preaches political violence and inspired January 6th, where Jesus is love and teaches love. Christian nationalism is anti Semitic, anti Muslim, all forms of hatred. And where Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Christian nationalism loves and embraces QAnon disinformation, lies, and conspiracy theories. So mm-hmm. it is it is explicitly 
unchristian, anti-Christian. And when people see this kind of hatred being spread in Jesus's name, they say, I want nothing to do with that. And, and they leave the church. And I can't blame them, but I can certainly blame Donald Trump, Michael Flynn, Franklin Graham, uh, your favorite, John MacArthur. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. So I know you guys go way back. Um, way back. <laughs> so I, to me, the biggest, and then of course, Christian nationalism is, is threatening democracy. The goal of Christian nationalism is to not to follow Jesus, but to use Jesus. And I don't question the actual faith that many people may have in their hearts, but as a, as a project and as a political ideology, they're using Jesus to political ends. And, and we can see a number of places where it's clearly politics using religion, not the other way around. Uh, we can look at specific examples from pastors for Trump or from Andrew Torba, but um, mm. their goal is to seize power at any cost for themselves and those like them for other, mostly white, all conservative, straight, mostly evangelical Christians. And it's exactly the opposite of what Jesus did when the devil said, worship me and I'll give you all the political authority. And Jesus said, no, thank right. you. And now you've got right. Sean Foyt saying, actually, I do want Christians making all the decisions, all the authority for, for those in our faith. And then what they try to do once they have the authority is only protect themselves. Hey, religious freedom means we need the right to discriminate. No, religious freedom means opposing the Muslim ban and supporting indigenous rights, not demanding the right to discriminate. And only you are protected from discrimination. Religious, That's right. they say, we've got to be able to put our prayers in schools and, and indoctrinate kids. We've got to put chaplains instead of counselors in schools and indoctrinate kids into our religion. No, when we seek power, it should be to lift up all people for the common good, not just to help ourselves. So it's a power-based project. And because they think they're doing it for God, anything goes, right? They, they say, oh, our candidates can't lose because they're divinely inspired. If they do lose, it means fraud. And so they engage in this election denial. Yeah, yeah. But because it was God's candidate and they only lost because of your fraud and we're doing this for God, Violence is okay. Right. And you get attacks on FBI offices. You get threats against juries and judges. The Prince of Peace weeps at all of this. So political violence is what worries me the most right now. Well, I'm not sure if you saw that Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, who is deeply tied into the Christian Nationalist Circuit and the NAR in particular, the New Apostolic Reformation, he said one of his key things was, was that he was going to release all 40,000 hours of the January 6th tapes for full radical transparency so we can see the truth. And he just announced that. that transparency going? Yeah, well, he just announced that they're going to be blurring out the faces of all the rioters yep. because they, they don't want the government going after them. And it's like, wait a second. Oh, so it's actually not about full transparency. It's about you being able to control the level of information that's yep. out there based on how you see fit. And, and, the, and the, one of the things that's very interesting to me is that. Christian nationalism and friends, by the way, if you're new to the podcast, we've covered that we've covered Christian nationalism way more in depth on like a on like an academic level. You can see my interview with Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, Andrew Seidel. So so I know we're kind of skipping ahead here. You, you can go back into some of those episodes. I'm not going to recap all of that, why we use that term, etc. I know that some people criti uh, critique um, people like me for being too broad, but we have well defined the term and have well we, we have well-established research on what exactly it is that we're talking about here. One of my issues with Christian nationalism is that it's always folding in on itself. Like it's so full of contradictions where it espouses one thing that it says, okay, you have to do this, but we don't, right? So we stand on truth, but also we can say that the election was stolen, even though we have really, I, I'm, I'm comfortable enough saying we have objective data showing that that is absolutely not the case, right? And so 
this is an, another great example where here we have a, a speaker of the house who gets elected um, and is now like, hey, truth and transparency, except we're going to block out the na- We're going to blur out the faces. That way no one knows who they are. OK, right. so it's, it's only specific. You know, it's limited transparency based on how we see fit. And it is interesting to see how this world consistently operates on half truths time and time again and will always twist things to fit that very specific narrative that we are on God's team and that um, the, 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 our enemies, which is, well, let me correct you. I'm going to jump in and interrupt to correct you because I wish they said we're on God's team, but what they say, as I was looking into this yesterday, Mm. finding the exact quotes from Lauren Boebert and um, Michael Flynn, a number of others, they say, Clay Clark, they say God is on our side, Mm. not we're on God's side. I I wish they said we're on God's team, but no, no, it's, they're the starting point. Sorry. No, no, that that is actually a very important (laughs) distinction because who's, who who does it center around, right? right? It's who's on our team and now God is. So my only point was just to say how I find this framework um so full of of blatant contradictions i mean one example i'll mm-hmm. give you nathan i'm a uh, reverend nathan i'm not even sure if you know this but you know i go to turning point america fest every year uh, i just went yeah. i'm working on content for it um and last year when i went i met rob mccoy i shook his hand i was introduced to him by someone i'm not going to say their name um and uh, i was able to talk to him on the floor for about 10 minutes he was super cordial he even he's invited me out now twice to go visit him in california two times and i i do want to go for the record rob if you're listening to this um but i asked him i said i said pastor rob help me understand how we as christians can read the sermon on the mount right though the loving your enemies the non-dehumanization ethic of jesus that we see through and through and then how we can be here in this room with eleven thousand people and hundreds of right-wing contributors who are all saying things that are blatantly dehumanizing you know about how we have to destroy our enemies and how the trans agenda is trying to take over kids and we have to eradicate transgenderism like where is jesus in this you know because i don't see how these ethics match up and he essentially punted and he gave me a seven point speech on why yeah, Trump is, is was God's chosen candidate, which ironically matches up very well to the seven mountain mandate. So e, I, I've even had the opportunity to ask people at the top of some of this stuff, help me understand the contradiction. And they have not given me a straight answer yet. They always appeal to some other excuse that somehow justifies the answer. And that tells me that first and foremost, to your point, this is really more about using uh, Jesus and yeah. using Christianity yeah. um, as a, a weapon uh, or maybe a Trojan horse, I should say, to really get in a more sinister uh, worldview, I guess we can call it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. All of that. I mean, a couple of things that have come to mind as, as you make all these great points. I'll back up first to, to say Speaker Johnson. Yeah. And, and his Christian nationalism, he, in a lot of ways, reminds me of Franklin Graham in the veneer that is put up. Now, we've read stories about Graham, but uh, Samaritan's Purse, the organization Franklin Graham, the humanitarian organization Franklin Graham runs, does legitimately good work. Mm-hmm. I think they could do even better work if they didn't discriminate against LGBTQ doctors and staff. Uh, they don't against patients. I don't have reason to believe they do, but I'm sure some LGBTQ patients are scared away thinking they'll face that substandard care. Uh, the, the group does amazing work. They could do even better work. Nevertheless, Franklin Graham is, he's become a conspiracy theorist in the last few years. He's always been viciously homophobic. Yep. Uh, yep. He, he used to be somewhat pro-immigrant. He now tries to justify Donald Trump's anti-immigrant stances. 
Uh, it's, a, it's a very right wing and hateful political agenda. Uh, vicious in the way he talks about not just queer folks, but progressive Christians, oh, yeah. really anyone okay. who disagrees with him or challenges him, at least he's pro vaccine. But other than that, but he hides all this behind the good work of Samaritan's Purse and behind his father, Billy's legacy. You know, Franklin Graham runs the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Billy explicitly said that he, he didn't necessarily think you had to be Christian to, to go to heaven. Some really interesting interviews he did around that, especially later in life. Uh, Franklin ignores that, but he hides behind the goodwill Billy's generated. He hides behind Samaritan's Purse and he uses that really good work to insidiously bring the hateful agenda and the Republican politics everywhere he goes. Do, you know, have a big rally for Jesus, but then give political interviews to every local outlet in town. Speaker Johnson, similarly, he smiles. He's friendly. Yes. He has good working yes. relationships with everyone. I'm sure I'd love to have him over for dinner. Yeah. But he's not just yeah. blurring the faces in the videos to protect insurrectionists and traitors. He was the lead architect within the House of the Republican talking points to defend Stop the Steal, to advance election denial. We didn't think about that because he was, what, second term at the time, maybe third term, this, this no-name backbencher, right. but a really right. smart lawyer doing all the in-depth legal work. And you ignore because it's with the smile totally and then he comes totally. out with all of this is, is it's not public service it's a legal ministry serving in congress is is his ministry the same as a pastoral yep. ministry or chaplaincy uh and so it has nothing to do with public service or non-christians it's just one more mission field and his only allegiance thus is to the christian constituents that's really harmful yeah. But it's hidden behind the smile, the way franklin graham hides behind uh samaritan's purse and billy graham so then when you when you talk about how they stand on these half-truths, I kept thinking, exactly, because they're not using truth. They're not even using the half-truth. They're using political strategy. Andrew Torba is the anti-Semitic guy who runs Gab. Oh, yeah. I think it's called I have the, 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 the Truth. So, well, I'm about, yeah, so that book explicitly says, hey, guys, we've got to stop believing that uh, Jesus is coming back any day now. We've got to change mm -hmm. our end times uh, uh, millennial theologies because it's a losing political theology. If Jesus is coming back any day, why do we have to take power? Why do we have to win elections? That's a losing theology. We need a winning theology. How 100%. about you need a theology of truth? Whatever that may be, we can disagree over the truth. We can disagree over the Bible, but that should be what you're seeking, the truth of God and the truth of love, not, oh, I have my politics. What's going to help me win? That's what we need to say about God. So it's a, I, this is not, I don't remember who said this. This is not an original quote, but it's a politics in search of a religion, not a religion in search of a politics. And I've got a board yeah. member who says our faith shapes our politics, not the other way around, but for the Christian nationalist leaders, it's, it's very much the other way around. It's power first, whatever gets them the power. That's what they're going to say and do. Jake Knapp is the inventor of the Design Sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, it's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. 
And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You could turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. Must be present in certain states. Visit prizepicks.com for restrictions and details. You know, for a long time, I was on the fence about about which fed which. You know, where which one which one's the cart, which one's the horse, and and I think to a degree, I still go back and forth sometimes because, to be fair, the term Christian nationalism does encompass a wide range of people. Um, I think that, for example, Doug Wilson really thinks that his theology has led him to where he is politically, uh, but he also likes to apologize for slave owners. You know, in his book and downplay the uh, how how slavery was not as bad as you think. Uh, so. Uh, but I, I I will say broadly speaking, I am more persuaded by what you said, uh, Reverend Nathan, um, where it does seem like political power is the chief god here, and then whatever pragmatic means we have to use, whether it's democracy if it serves us now, or authoritarianism authoritarianism if it, if it serves us later on, anything can be really ch- switched out to fit inside the mold of we have to be the ones in control. I mean, I even think about how effective this Christian nationalist machine is when it comes to pulling obscure Bible verses and characters out to justify um, why Trump should be president. I mean, I've I've never really heard about uh, Cyrus, King Cyrus. You know, he was a pretty obscure character in my 33 years of growing up a pretty devoted evangelical. And all of a sudden now, King Cyrus is like, pretty much uh, a pretty common phrase that we hear if, if you're in the world that we occupy where, you know, hey, look, look at Cyrus in the Bible. This is what Trump is now. So they're really good at picking out random, out of context, obscure mm-hmm. verses to to then say, look, the Bible, this is our biblical justification. And what makes it so insidious is how they will ignore the mountain of other passages that would condemn the work that they're doing, right? Well, but I do think that they they rely on their audience being very ignorant, right? So they rely on their audience. No, here's here's what I mean. I, I see your face. What I mean by that is, I mean like who I'm thinking of is average is is little old Betty in the pew who's 75 years old and just you know the pastor has taught me the word of God. Maybe she doesn't really have a you know a deep understanding or even has even read through the whole Bible, and so just she just relies on Sunday morning service to bring her through certain passages of scripture. That's what I mean by ignorant, meaning that they're just not nearly as. Um, maybe well-read or something like that. I, I just think there's a lot of that being used to the advantage of, therefore, we need we need to take power because here's our list of verses that justify it. Now we're now God's on our side. Now go take the America back for God. Well, I'm not prepared to call a third or 40% of America ignorant, but I, I do think that they are <laughs> – that was my face. But I do think that you're right that they're appealing to um, everyone's – lesser angels to our fear if not our ignorance i mean they, they probably they, mm. they're definitely hoping folks won't fact check them and if you think yeah, about it yeah. most conversations we have in life most conversations i've got two master's degrees most conversations that you know intellectual ivy league snobs like me have if we're just lobbing facts and quotes back and forth at one another 
uh, give it three days, neither of us are going to remember a lot of the facts or quotes that were lobbed, but we will remember, boy, that guy made me feel defensive, attacked, argumentative, or wow, that person made me afraid of the bad guys. I got to fight the bad guys. Or they made me feel hopeful, welcomed, loved. And, and so they have, it's appealing to those emotions. That's what all communications does, all effective communications, but you can do it in a positive way or you can do it in a negative, lesser angels, fear-based way. But let me right. let me back up for a minute because I, I want to go, go back ahead. to what you were talking about, uh, what we were talking about, religion and politics, which comes first. And I, I'll give you another uh, example. Um, well, first I want to say, uh, Catherine Stewart, a friend mm. and author, investigative journalist. She's great. Yeah, Catherine's phenomenal. She makes the point frequently that Christian nationalism is a leader-led movement, a leader-driven, leader-focused movement. And I think that's right. And so I'll use tough talk and and question a lot of the leaders. We'll definitely yell about Donald Trump, but I I try not to yell about Donald Trump voters. Um, And and I don't want to talk about evangelicals, just the leaders. I don't want to talk about Christian nationalists. I want to talk about Christian nationalism and Christian Mm -hmm. nationalist leaders. It's very important for us to remember that we don't know anybody's heart or their relationship with God. Tony Perkins and Jim Baker have both questioned my faith. I don't want to do that back to them or anyone else. Um, and so I think yeah. that you're right. There are a lot of people for whom the faith comes first, leads to the politics. And that's true even of some leaders. But as a movement, as, as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a, an established, well-networked coalition and, and pseudo-political party, well, now it is a political party. They've taken over the Republican Party. I, I do think that at that level, they're definitely uh, setting, looking for the power, setting up the politics, setting up the theocracy, and looking for the religious justifications without talking about specific individuals. So now let's talk about specific individuals. Um, there's this group, Pastors for Trump. Uh, mm. They are an affiliate of Reawaken America Tour, Michael Flynn and Clay Clark's Roadshow. Uh, they're run by this this failed Senate candidate, an Oklahoma pastor by the name of Jackson Lameyer or Lameyer, and. Every time they have a prayer call, it'll go for like 45 minutes. And the ones I've listened to, less than five minutes are spent in prayer. Hmm. And they have rallies at Reawaken America, usually the night, you know, same venue the night before. They'll bring out Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, all the all the headliners from Reawaken America are also the headliners of Pastors for Trump. So there are pastors there. I mean, Lehmeyer is a pastor. Mark Burns is on the board and shows up. But a majority of the speakers, sometimes 80, 90 percent of the speakers are Stone and Flynn. They have Donald Trump himself call in on the phone. And so they're saying it's pastors for Trump. They're saying it's a prayer call and they're not spending barely any time in prayer. And they're listening mm. to more politicians and pundits than pastors. And I look at that and I say, this, this is not a religious organization talking about how to put their faith into action in, in the public sphere. This is a political organization trying to co-opt religious language and imagery to sucker in religious people, just like they right. did on January 6th or in the run-up to January 6th. Mm. And they're always putting the politics first, trying to appeal to people's religion so that people then feel as deeply about the politics as they feel about the religion, right? If God is the most important thing in your life, and I think God should be, then they want you to graft Trump or MAGA or Congresswoman Green or whoever the candidate in question is, graft that person, graft that party onto God so that you will have a religious fervor for their politics. Yeah. 
No, I think that, I think that's a very fair point, and um, the audience that's listening does not need a ton of examples to know how dangerous Christian nationalism yeah. is because we've covered this. But I, one of the one of the bright spots about having you on the podcast is that you and in your crew and your in your work along with, with others um, have done some some work to actually help resist some of this stuff in more of the legal sphere when it comes to policies and just I think even culture. So can you maybe share some of the wins that, that you've seen when it comes to resisting? in Christian nationalism uh, and give us some good news because I do yeah. think a lot of people are like, man, I mean, I'm, I, I literally just watched a clip where Sean Hannity asked Donald Trump directly, do you want to be a dictator? And Trump did not answer really? the question. He And he literally, he answered by saying only on day one. And you're just like, what? I mean, I mean, it's just, it, it, it does scare me, I think, uh, severely to see Sean, Trump's best friend or bud on, in politics, you know, in the news cycle ask Trump a direct question about him being a dictator and Trump not even saying, of course not, you know, we're a democracy. Instead it's, Oh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, only on day one, LOL. Ha ha ha. And moving on. It's like, that's not really a good answer, dude. And people in the audience are laughing. So a lot of us are concerned, but give us, give us some positives. Is there any good news going on here? Absolutely. Uh, nice. yeah, yeah, I love, I love this it. question. Let's talk about hope. Let's talk about the gospel. I eat the good news. Good yes. stuff. Um, so yeah, you, you said you, your crew, my crew is 200,000 strong. I, I am just a steward of faithful America. I'm not the first executive director. I won't be the last faithful America's strength is that we've got over 200,000 members from every major denomination and tradition, Christian tradition in the country, uh, both, both clergy and, and lay folks, people in the pews, ex-evangelicals among them, uh, all, all putting their faith into action online and in their communities and that, that's where the power comes from, is, is the grassroots membership and, and raising our voices together collectively. And I'll point to two recent wins. Uh, we were just talking about the Reawaken America tour, which mm-hmm. is, I'm sure you've probably talked about it on, on the podcast before. Uh, it's, it's where Flynn and then these dozen pastor pals go from city to city with, is it a religious revival? Is it a political rally? <laughs> Blending together baptisms with QAnon and election yeah. denial with, with Sean Foyt's praise music. Well, uh, everywhere the Reawaken America tour goes, Faithful America speaks out in protest. Sometimes we have local clergy holding press conferences. Sometimes we have prayer vigils in, in multiple local churches. Uh, we always send a mobile billboard. You and I are talking just before, and this, this podcast will drop, I think, just after the most recent Reawaken America. So I'll speak in past tense. They just met in, in Tulare, California, outside of Fresno and Bakersfield, and we had several local clergy speaking out. We had our mobile billboard calling out Michael Flynn and, and Roger Stone and others as false prophets. You can learn more about our list of false prophets at AmericanFalseProphets.org. Why is this a win? Well, the LA Times a month or two ago credited Faithful America with why Reawaken America is having a harder and harder time finding host venues. So we've, we've gathered tens and tens of thousands of signatures on petitions to venues, driven some phone calls saying, please, they've got free speech, but so do you. Use your free speech to choose not to host this kind of hatred and election denial. Use your free speech to support democracy, not to platform these anti-democracy attacks in Jesus's name. We're using our free speech. The venues are using theirs just the same as Mike Flynn uses his. And as a result, more and more venues are saying no to this kind of hatred. They're having a harder and harder time finding venues. In Nevada, in Las, North Las Vegas, they had to build their own giant tent and pay for all these massive air conditioners at a public park because they couldn't find a conference center or hotel that would that would take them. So they're wasting money building their own venues now because grassroots Christians are speaking up and saying, not in our name. Mm-hmm. Um, another more clear victory. I'm really excited about this just in time for Christmas. 
Fisher Price it's owned by Mattel and they have those little people like the little kids toy company exactly so they have all okay. these little people and uh, you know the little people on capital L capital P and there's a, a really cute nativity scene a little people nativity scene they've also I think got a Noah's Ark maybe uh, the nativity scene is gorgeous we have one in our house and then one of my board members who has a child same age as mine pointed out that is a super white super blonde super blue eyed Jesus. The whole, mm. fa- the whole holy family in this nativity scene was incredibly white. Now, if you bought the extended version of the nativity scene, the wise men were people of color, but those were the side characters and you had to pay extra. Mm. So right. we at Faithful America wrote a letter a while back to Mattel and Fisher Price and said, we're sure you mean well. You're trying to make Barbie more diverse. That, that's great. So we know you mean right. well. This actually furthers white supremacy. Jesus was not white. And look at all these quotes from theologians, Father Jim Martin, Professor Anthea Butler, all these important theologians and voices explaining why this is racist, even if you don't mean it to be. Uh, Yes, we all need to see Jesus like us, but at the same time, Jesus intentionally came and occupied Palestinian territory occupied by the Romans. The Romans did not see a Jesus who looked like them. They were reminded that the oppression was wrong, that this is who they were oppressing. And those who Mm -hmm. were oppressed, they saw a Jesus like them. Jesus needs to look like marginalized communities. Well, Fisher Price responded and said, we'll take it on advisement. You really, you've made some good points and you'll never hear from us again. (laughs) They don't announce (laughs) whether or not they're going to change their toys. It just happens. Well, flash forward about a year and a half. It just happened. I was preparing wow. to, to resend the letter to Fisher Price. So we gathered 15,000 after this letter. And after they said we wouldn't hear from them again, we gathered over 15,000 signatures. We gathered some headlines to put additional pressure on, on Fisher Price to change white Jesus. And I was preparing to re-up the petition and, and resend our, our letters. So I was double checking their website and lo and behold, the Holy family were people of color. It was great. Brand new set. You can't even, they still have the old white Jesus for sale. I don't know if it's choose your own adventure Jesus or if they're just clearing out old inventory, but mm. in the extended version, you can't get white Jesus anymore. If you want the big 10 piece version instead of a little six piece version, you're going to have a Brown Holy family, a more historically accurate centering marginalized people. So there are a lot of folks out there like Fisher Price. Thank you. If you're listening, Mattel, thank you for doing the right thing. <laughs> yes. Thank you. There Seriously, are a lot of people great. who want to do the right thing. They just need a nudge. And adding 15,000 signatures to our letter got their attention. You know, DirecTV pressured a number of their televangelist stations to drop the Jim Baker show after Jim Baker sold COVID snake oil early in the pandemic. That was because Mm -hmm. we sent 20,000 or so signatures to them, calling their attention to the matter. And it didn't take much more than that. AT&T, the owner of DirecTV, didn't want to get in legal trouble. They didn't want to kill people. But they needed someone to bring the issue to their attention. And 20,000 signatures wasn't one more email in the inbox they could ignore. So they, mm. they did the right thing fairly quickly. So when we speak out collectively, especially to corporations that don't want the brand tarnished, that don't want the bottom line <laughs> hit, but also right. but are helmed by real people who often want to do the right thing. We, yes. can, we can get these wins. We can we can get rid of white Jesus for real Jesus. We, we can reduce the power in the platforms of the Christian nationalist speakers. So I certainly invite people to come to faithfulamerica.org, sign a petition, uh, take action with us, and, and we'll do this together. Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. 
They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M-I-R-O.com. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projected stats, and place your entry. You could turn $10 into $250. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/fan and use code FAN. That's code FAN at prizepicks.com/fan. Must be present in certain states. Visit prizepicks.com for restrictions and details. Well, I think one thing that I just kind of realized is that it's really powerful to know that petitions can work. I'll be honest with you, Reverend Nathan. There are times where I'm like, oh, okay, like, like what good are these signatures really going to do? Are they really effective? Is it just a way of me feeling like, like, like I'm making some change that is actually never going to happen? I'm really just self-soothing my own anxiety over something. But hearing you say that, listen, like when we have 10, 15, 20,000 signatures, these companies, they go, oh, okay, there's some movement behind this. We should take a closer look. And to hear how some of these changes have come about because of that gives me more hope and also more of a reason to really push people to sign petitions that we want to pass around because they can actually make serious change. So that's really good because I think a lot of people out there deep down, maybe they'll never admit this, but think, okay, like, so what if I don't sign my name? Like, is this really going to change things? And what I hear you saying is that when we do these things together and have a lot of names behind something, people tend to listen as opposed to just one random person speaking into you know the ether of the internet. 100%. And I'll give you a little digital organizer secret too. I, I was a digital organizer uh, before I went to seminary. I wanted to be sure and, and have a first career in between college and, and, and divinity school. And I was doing digital work then too for the Sierra Club and others. Look, if you sign it, whether it's a lot of petitions can do real good, as we just talked, especially if they're married with press releases and, and social media tactics, uh, if they're the tip of the spear, so to speak. But here's the other thing. Yeah, some petitions probably aren't going to change the world. But if you don't sign that petition, I don't know you're interested in that issue. So if you mm. want the other uh, actions from the email list, know when there's a webinar, an event you can RSVP for, a call alert, a social media action, we're not going to send that to the full email list because those those are higher bar actions fewer people are going to take. We're going to send those actions to people we know are interested in that particular issue, be it, be it white Jesus or immigration or uh, LGBTQ marriage equality in the church or in the law. And so by signing the petition, you also kind of say, that's a topic I'm interested in. And we know to send you the other higher bar stuff that only 500 instead of 5,000 people will want to take. So it's still in your interest, I think, to sign petitions to get the content you really want that follows. Uh, here's the other thing, too. The news doesn't always want to quote one person. They, they'd love to mm. quote 10, 15, 20,000. Those are real numbers. That, that matters more than just one guy spouting off. The religious right and Christian nationalist leaders have always been really good at convincing the media, we speak for all Christians. If you are Christian, yes. you have to share our politics, not just our faith. Right. And for a number of reasons, moderate, progressive, and Christians don't speak out as effectively or in the same way, and that, that needs to change. 
And that's what we're doing. And that's what these petitions do. To send a statement from me, big deal. But we can send a press release saying 20,000 Christians said this thing you didn't expect them to say against Franklin Graham. And Newsweek or The Hill or The Guardian are super excited to cover that. That's the reason we, we protest uh, reawaken America and send our petitions every time. When pastors have a press conference denouncing Michael Flynn's Christian nationalism, they hold up. I've, I've got a one uh, right here for those watching the video. You know these physical books of our petitions. The reawaken mm. America doesn't speak for us, and you can show these to the press, and that changes the press coverage. They, they don't say, "Oh, it's gays versus Christians or Democrats versus Christians." It's, "Oh, it's Christians calling out." the distortion of Christianity, we show those numbers and we chip away at the religious rights, very claim to power. Which I freaking love. I mean, this is why we're, we're launching project amplified. This is exactly, it's the same idea, right? Like I'm tired. I'm exhausted of fundamentalism. Speaking on behalf of all Christians, they don't own the corner on Christianity on what it means to be a Jesus follower. And I agree. I don't always see the amount of content that I want to see from other Christians who are like, first off, not in my name. Second off, this is just terrible interpretation. And third, thirdly, it's not even like in the Christian tradition. It's not even that popular. You know, it just feels that way because this is all you know. So I, I love that. I love to know that petitions actually can make a serious change. I did not know that about the media, meaning when you have a, a book of, of 20,000 signatures, they go, oh, there's some weight behind this. So folks, I mean, listen, I'm just being honest with you in the moment. I'm encouraged to sign more petitions. Like I get, I get offered a lot. I'm like, ah, who cares if my signature isn't on it? But these things are actually a way for people like you to make that change because I get this all the time, Reverend Nathan. I'm sure you do too. How do I fight back? I feel so powerless. I'm, 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 you know, I, I'm a stay at home parent or, you know, I, I work in accounting and I don't have time like you do, Tim, to read these books and, and, and try and push back on this stuff. Okay. If that's you, just sign the petitions then, or maybe contact your local representative. Like using your voice is one of the most effective ways to make the change that we all want to see. A hundred percent. And you said, what difference does it make if my name isn't on it? Would you even know that my name is or isn't if it's that many, even 25, 30,000? Well, look, Franklin Graham is going on tour. His inappropriately named, you know, smokescreen, God loves you tour when really he's out there saying <laughs> God only loves some people. He, he right. does these tours always, you know, he says they're apolitical and then they're always in politically advantage, advantageous, like swing states this year with Republicans trying to highlight immigration. He's going to border states. He's going to be in Texas, Arizona, Southern California on the God loves you tour. Well, we're going to be speaking out against the tour, talking to the venues that are hosting him, uh, driving actions, hopefully doing the, the mobile billboard type thing. Uh, providing that Christian counter witness to his distortion of Christianity. If you live in Tucson or El Paso or one of the other cities where he's going to be, why would we invite you to any events or press conferences we're having if you haven't signed the petition with 30,000 others that said, I reject Franklin Graham's tour? Like, if you're not right. going to sign a petition against the tour in, in a minute, I just assume that you're not going to drive 20 minutes for a two hour event you know, on the same issue. Uh, and right. I don't want to bother you like this. I don't mean this in a negative way. I don't want totally. to fill your inbox with stuff you don't want. So if you right. aren't willing to sign a petition, respect, no shade. I assume you're right. also not willing to take more time for a phone call or an event. And I'm not going to invite you. So, hey, find that Franklin Graham petition at faithfulamerica.org right now and sign it. It's there on the homepage. I love it. I love it. Reverend Nathan, this was a great conversation. I thank you for giving us hope during this Christmas season when so often a lot of us feel like it is hopeless. So thank you so much. It wasn't yeah. hopeless for Scrooge. It wasn't hopeless for the Grinch. True. You know, they, they, it wasn't hopeless for Saul turned Paul. 
You know, they, yeah. they, they all changed. There's so much hope at Christmas time. Let's keep that all year round. I'm all about it. Where can folks find Faithful America? Are you on Twitter, Instagram? Is it a website? Like, where can folks get more involved? If they want, if they want petitions in their inbox, if they're like, Reverend Nathan, I fill my inbox full of petitions. How will they get signed up? Best thing is faithfulamerica.org. Head to the websites. You'll find the 10 most recent petitions on the homepage. Sign one of them. You can also click on Christian nationalism in the upper right corner. Check out recommended resources, webinars, great toolkits, things like that. Uh, you can also just put in your email and zip code in the, in the box right on the homepage. But pick up your favorite petition. Sign that. Uh, we are on threads and on Facebook and on Instagram. We're not maybe as active as we should be. Relatively small staff, but we're there. Yeah, we're on Twitter, but I'm done pushing that because Dude, Elon same. I'm so over it. I've, I've locked my personal account. I don't tweet anymore. Faithful America is still there because reporters are still there. You can follow us if you want, but I mean, I would much prefer you find us on threads, Facebook, and best of all, yeah. faithfulamerica.org. Awesome. Well, Reverend Nathan, if I don't talk to you again, have a great Christmas and thanks so much for being here. It means the world. God bless. Merry Christmas, my friend. Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, you know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O dot com.